grew up in a boxcar in Oildale by the railroad track. His daddy died when he was eight years old. He had a hard time with that. His mama did the best she could, but he stayed out on the run. They locked him away in San Quentin before he was 21. I got the Merle Haggard Blues today. Ghoulish salutations, everybody. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those amazing tunes you just heard is, of course, courtesy of the lovely Bobby Mackey. And if you noticed, I chose that song because he talks about San Quentin and also Merle Haggard, who spent time there. I am your host, Tessa Morrow. My mind is like a prison field. Sun dawn never shine. Got a license and I'm doing all time. Last week you heard part one of the special two-part episode series where you heard some of the history of San Quentin and its very first executioner, Amos Lunt. So let's hop right into it. I want to talk about some of the executions that took place here in San Francisco, some of the past inmates, and some of the current inmates. And it's all happening right now. Thoughts of lost children and my mother never there. The first execution under the new law about executions having to be at a state prison took place March 3rd, 1893. Jose Gabriel, also known as Indian Joe, he was a wood chopper. And I don't know what was the last straw to break the camel's back, but one day he up and quits his job. He then demands that his former employees pay him immediately. He doesn't want to hear no excuses, no bullshit. He wants his money, and he wants it right now. They are just so sick of Jose and his attitude, and they refuse to give in to his little immature, petty games. No, man, you quit. You get paid when we pay you. But no, we're not going to bend over backwards to help you. Well, this is the last thing that they will do. He murders them, and he almost kills their nephew as well and he is hanged for this double homicide. On October 16, 1892, the neighbors of John and Sophia Geyser, they grow extremely concerned after one of their children hears screaming, yelling, and cries coming from the Geyser family home. Well, Fred Piper and his son, Junior, they make their way to their neighbor's home where they find Jose Gabriel. It is very obvious looking at this man, that something ominous has taken place in this home. Father and son successfully subdue the culprit, and once he is no longer considered a threat, Senior and Junior find the badly bludgeoned bodies of John and Sophia. They were a very sweet couple, elderly couple, who were well-liked and respected in the community. It was two very huge losses, for sure. While on trial for the double heinous murders of the Geyser couple, Jose denies any wrongdoing whatsoever, claiming that while he was in the house, he had not even seen the two bodies and that he had been there simply to just grab a bite to eat. Now, thankfully, everybody saw through his web of lies and he was found guilty and got himself a date with the noose. He walks the dead man's walk to the gallows. 
And I found a little article about the execution, and it reads this, quote, The execution yesterday of Indian Joe was a fitting sequel to the Ote tragedy. For once, the law has been found equal to the proper punishment of a capital offender in this state. Had this poor wretch been well supplied with friends and money, the result, as in numerous other instances, might have been different. Many a man who has taken a life in California has bought his neck out of the halter. Jose Gabriel deserved to die, but hundreds of others, as guilty as he, have lived to boast of their misdeeds because they had the means of purchasing their freedom. It is a discreditable state of things that only poor men and friendless pay the penalty of their crimes. Unquote. 215 people would follow Jose Gabriel to the gallows before the gas chamber would be installed in 1938. Mose Gibson was a serial killer who was believed to be responsible for at least seven murders. Two months before his scheduled execution, South Bend News Times reports this, July 24th of 1920, quote, Mose Gibson is sentenced to hang for the murder of Roy Trapp, Fullerton, California, rancher, has confessed to 10 murders, according to telephone message received Friday by Sheriff Jackson of Santa Ana. Sheriff Jackson has just returned from taking Gibson to the penitentiary at San Quentin. The murders to which Jackson said Gibson confessed were Roy Trapp, a rancher from Fullerton, California, Mr. and Mrs. Jacob Erdhart from Phoenix, Arizona, last month, J.R. Revis, restaurant man of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 12 years ago. A woman at Orange City Junction killed in November of 1919. A watchman at a sugar mill at Gramercy St. James Parish, Louisiana, murdered in November 1910. Admissions that he committed thousands of burglaries, obtaining from a few cents to $100 was made by Gibson, according to the sheriff. Gibson was arrested at Topoka, Arizona, for the murder of Trapp and for an assault on Mrs. Trapp. He was brought here, pleaded guilty to the murder charge, and was sentenced to hang September 24th. He killed most of his victims with a hammer. Unquote. He was hanged September 24th of 1920. Gordon Stewart Northcott was born and raised in British Columbia, and he moves with his family to California in 1924. Just six years later, at the age of 23, he would be legally executed via hanging in one of the United States' most notorious state prisons. Gordon, there's no easy way around it. He was a dangerous son of a bitch. He was a pedophile. Ugh. Ugh. Sorry, I just see red when it comes to pedophiles. There is a notorious pedophile close to where I live on my block. Oh, every time I see him, I just... Mm. <laughs> Think very bad thoughts. Very bad thoughts indeed. Spoiler alert, he likes three-year-old kids. Just saying. Anyways, besides being a pedophile, he is also a kidnapper and a serial killer. What a horrendous trifecta. Like, seriously. This trio could not be any worse. A truly vile excuse of a human being. 
He was known as the chicken coop murderer when he was at his family's chicken ranch. He would spend a lot of time with children, a little too much time. He would first befriend the child, maybe give them some candy, a soda, things that they truly enjoyed, and they would spend time with him because of this. And most importantly, they would trust him. He would gain their trust. They're young children. They don't know any better. He ultimately would rape them. And while many of his victims would live to see another day, thank God, at least four children, however, would not be so lucky and would be introduced to premature graves. One of these young, poor, unfortunate souls was Walter Collins. He was only nine years old when he was brutally murdered. He went missing in 1928, and unfortunately, the young child's body has never been located. Shockingly enough, Gordon's mother, Sarah Louise Northcutt, admits to authorities that she helped her son murder this child and was handed a life sentence for her part. I mean, why would this mother rob another mother of her child? Makes no sense. I will never understand these types of monsters. I mean, how dare her? I don't know. Maybe she walked in and caught Gordon raping this poor child. And instead of doing the normal thing, stopping it and reporting it, even if it was her son who was the bad guy in that case, but maybe she was afraid that her son would never see the light of day and she tried to help him. Wiping this nine-year-old child out of existence. It's disgusting. Who knows what went on that fateful day? But guess what, you guys, Karma? It is a mighty bitch. The child rapist slash killer is hanged on the second day of October, 1930, and the noose does not break the pedophile's neck, and it takes him 13 minutes to finally croak. Cause of death? Slow strangulation. And I hope it hurt like hell and that he was terrified as terrified as his young victims were when he was raping them, torturing them, and ultimately murdering them. I turned from your grace when you tried to give me sight. Ed Davis was an outlaw known as the Fox. He does time at Folsom State Prison when one day he attempts to escape, and during this commotion, One guard and two fellow inmates are killed. In 1937, with escape and freedom still on the outlaw's mind, the fox and six fellow convicts hold the warden and two guards hostage in an ever-so-desperate plan to escape. They held the men at knife point and try to use them to escape the state prison, but the guards have other plans, and they open fire. The end result is that the warden and two prisoners are killed. And Ed Davis and his fellow inmates, they surrender. So at this point, with his two escape attempts, there are four dead inmates, one dead guard, and one dead warden. Davis is sent to San Quentin, where he spends a total of one week on death row. He is not here long enough, thank goodness, to plan an escape. And after his date with the gas chamber, which took place December 16th, 1938, a note is found in his jail cell. Quote, No regrets for old Ed. All considered, my conscience is now resting easy. Unquote. 
Johansson, he was born in Denmark, and he comes to the United States at a young age. As an adult, he moves to New York City, where at some point he works in the hospital morgue. Working ever so closely with dead people, it is kind of an eye-opener for the young man. He becomes obsessed with the deceased and even begins to sleep with the dead bodies in the morgue. Red flag right there for you. Johansson, he marries a young woman. Her name is Florence. And him and Florence, they have two beautiful children together. Well, things unfortunately are not okay between man and wife. And they eventually do separate. Well, October 20th, 1933, an argument takes place between them. And the result is William strangles Florence until she is no longer breathing. The deranged man then gets a knife and slices her stomach open to see if she was being truthful with him when she told him that she was pregnant. Shockingly enough, her death was ruled a suicide by disembowelment. Like, are you kidding me right now? Come on, people, seriously. In a seven-year period, William murders his wife and two other women, coast-to-coast killers. New York and California. After the murder of his wife, he changes his name to Harry Gordon, and Harry moves out west to San Francisco. While there, he picks up a prostitute named Lena Betty Coffin, and he strangles Coffin until she loses consciousness. He then, like his wife, proceeds to stab her. A few years later, after traveling to Oregon and Texas, he finds himself back in California and in the company of a woman at a hotel. Now, she falls asleep and he tries to wake her up, but he's unsuccessful. Now, I don't know, instead of letting her sleep like a normal human being would tend to do, the sadistic man strangles her with her own girdle. He then cuts out a piece of her torso and lays it next to her lifeless body. While he has a confirmed number of three killings, the number it's believed to be much, much higher than that. He is also suspected of being possibly the Cleveland torso murderer who remains unidentified to this very day. He acted tough, telling the media that he didn't care about his execution. I don't give a damn if I go to the gas house. Not much doubt I am a menace. I've killed three women. I'd probably do it again unless they get me out of the way. I expect the worst, and the sooner it comes, the better. Seems like he's bragging about these murders, that he was so incredibly proud of them. Thankfully, he is executed September 5th of 1941 in San Quentin. November 21st, 1941. The state of California executes its very first woman, Evelita Juanita Spinelli, or better known as the Duchess. She had opened her home in San Francisco to people in need, especially young homeless men. She not only gave them a roof over their head, a home-cooked meal, some booze, but with these men she would create a gang, grooming 
these ever-so-desperate men, into hardened criminals. What did they have to lose? They were homeless. They were living on the streets. I mean, but, you know, what the men didn't know is that she was going behind their backs and robbing them of the very little money and possessions that they had. One of her croonies, Albert, would murder a man during a robbery gone wrong. Albert, he shoots the man, and then he begins to grow really paranoid that Robert, a fellow croony who witnessed the shooting, would rat him out. So Spinelli gives Robert some coffin varnish, laced with chloral hydrate, and while he is unconscious, he is beaten to death. Horrible way to go. If he was paranoid already, you have to imagine how much of a mess he was when Robert was killed. Terrified, Albert confesses to the murder and is sent to Mendocino State Hospital for the remainder of his life. Quentin Duffy was warden at San Quentin from 1940 up until 1952. And he describes the Duchess as, quote, the coldest, hardest character, male or female, I have ever known. A homely, scrawny, nearsighted, sharp-featured scarecrow. The Duchess was a hog, evil as a witch, horrible to look at, impossible to like, unquote. Evelita Juanita Spinelli meets her maker in the gas chamber November 21st of 1941 at 52 years old. A horrible way to go for the most heinous of women making it a rather appropriate way to go. Raymond Lissenbaugh went by several different names, including aliases Robert James and Major Libby, but he was probably best known as Rattlesnake James. He had served as a private for the Marine Corps during the First World War. In 1932, one of the man of many names, Dirty Secrets, comes to light when it is revealed that he had repeatedly been raping his niece, Lois. September 21st of 1932, Raymond is recently married and he puts a life insurance for $5,000 in the event that his new wife, Winona, dies. They are driving one day on the Pikes Peak Highway in Colorado. Winona is driving when Raymond claims that the steering knuckle suddenly just breaks. According to Raymond, the car then abruptly leaves the road and slides right down the mountainside due to the steering knuckle catastrophe. He manages to free himself from the car, but sadly, oh God, no, can't be. Winona is trapped. Now, even though she is badly injured, she does survive this accident. Yeah, air quote that bad boy. Accident. This is believed to be Rattlesnake James' first attempt on taking his wife's life. People who reported to the scene of the accident, or maybe a better word, the crime, cannot help but notice that mm, Winona reeked of alcohol, and she had a horrible wound behind her ear. She is released a few weeks later and recovering in a cabin at Manitou Springs, Colorado, when tragedy strikes. During her recovery, at some point, while in that cabin, she is found dead in the bathtub. So an autopsy shows that she had suffered not one, but two 
skull fractures. And she also had bullet fragments in her brain. Now, they said that there was like, you know, that bad wound behind her ear. Was that, was she shot then? Daily News reported this on August 2nd of 1936. Quote, James soon wrote to Dr. George Gilmore, the Manitou coroner, asking him to alter the death certificate so he could collect double indemnity on his wife's life. He pointed out that Winona's death had not been due not merely to drowning, but that the head injury she received in the accident had been a contributing cause. Dr. Gilmore thought that was a reasonable request, and Rattlesnake James collects $14,000, unquote. Now remember, that life insurance was for $5,000, so he sure got a hell of a payday when he receives 14000 big ones. This man just got away with murder and got a decent amount of money out of it all. Fast forward, three years later, we are now in 1935. Raymond's nephew, Cornelius, comes for a visit, and sometime during this visit, he is in the car driving when tragedy strikes. He drives right off a cliff when, get this, the steering knuckle of the car breaks off. Hey, something smells rather rank, rancid, putrid, pee This sounds quite identical to what happened to his late wife, Winona, the first time he tried to kill her. He receives $5,000 in life insurance for the death of his nephew, Cornelius. Absolutely unbelievable. But I mean, really, why not do that? Beats getting a job. He's making a great deal of money. And if one person has to die because of that, why not? Who cares? People die all the time. Why go to a 9-to-5 job when he can make a bunch of money in a quick way? So what if he has to murder his wife, his own flesh and blood, his nephew? Please. He's a monster. He's unstoppable. Who will be Raymond Lissenbaugh's next victim? We are still in 1935, my friends. Cornelius, Raymond's nephew, killed. He is now going by the alias Robert Sherwood James. He had just married a woman named Mary Emma a few weeks earlier, who happened to be his sixth wife. Just a few weeks of wedding bliss when Raymond, (coughs) my apologies, Robert, as he is now going by that name, recruits a friend named Charles Hope to help him kill his new bride for insurance money. So far, he's been able to kill two people and get a good payday, so why not a third time? And he gives his friend $100 to purchase two rattlesnakes. In 1935, $100 has the same value as $2,284 today. Armed with the two venomous snakes, Charles brings over the serpents to Robert and Mary's home. She is pregnant. He finds Emma strapped to the kitchen table. Her concerned husband had told her a doctor is on the way to do a surgery, which had to do with the pregnancy. He's just a concerned husband and father-to-be. So... She didn't really question this all too much. She should have. Her eyes were covered. She was in such a vulnerable spot and position. She definitely maybe should have questioned things. Since her eyes were covered, she had no clue whatsoever that when Charles Hope came in through that door, that he was holding a box that contained two very venomous snakes. 
that could kill her with one single bite. Her husband, who she loved and trusted, mind you, puts her bare, vulnerable foot into the box where one of the deadly snakes strikes her, at least once, with fangs full of venom. He then requests his friend Charles to burn down the house. Charles refused to do this. So, okay, apparently Charles has no problem being hired by his friend to buy two snakes and bring them to the home, knowing damn well that an innocent pregnant woman is about to get bit and that the husband wants to kill her. He has no problem with any of that. But he does have a problem with burning the house down. Good to know. Charles, he leaves the house, leaving behind the pregnant woman, along with the two rattlesnakes. The fear that this woman must have felt is just so bone-chilling and absolutely heartbreaking. When he comes back at 1.30 a.m., he is shocked to see that she is still alive. She had been bitten at least once by a venomous snake hours earlier, and she is still alive by God. Rattlesnake James, he is infuriated and impatient that Emma is not dead yet. How dare her take this long to die? And he takes her into the backyard where a fish pond is, and he drowns her there. Meanwhile, a drunk-as-a-skunk Charles Hope is at a bar nearby, and he's bragging and bragging about his involvement in the murder and how he got away with it. And it turns out, during the autopsy, things were overlooked. Crucial things. Game-changer things. A date with the executioner type of things. Like the fact that there's a snake bite on the deceased young woman's foot. That got missed. During the murder trial, a rattlesnake is brought into the courtroom and it escapes its enclosure and causes pure terror within the courtroom. Charles hoped he would get life for his involvement. James got death and he was hanged in San Quentin, May 1st of 1942. Cause of death? Slow strangulation, taking him 10 minutes to expire. He got off easy, considering it took his wife several hours to die a slow, painful death, knowing that her husband wanted her dead. Raymond is the last person to be executed via hanging in the state of California. Whatever is living in your heart, running in your Lloyd Gomez, he was responsible for at least nine deaths of homeless men scattered across California in a one-year span. He went by the alias Harry Jenks, and he was referred to as the Phantom Hobo Killer. In 1939, as a young man, Gomez finds himself homeless. So he knows the despair and the hardship when it comes to having to fend for yourself living on the street, being constantly vulnerable to the weather elements and predators, creatures and human, especially human. So why would he target that type when he had been there himself? Homelessness. The way he killed his victims was always different. One victim was smashed against the head with a wine bottle. Another was shot to death. One was beat to death. I believe there were a couple that were attacked with a rock, crushing their skulls. One homeless man was sleeping when he was attacked with a large wood plank. 
His final interview before his execution that would take place October 16th of 1953, he was asked if he would like to see a chaplain. And he straight up refused, saying that religion meant not a single damn thing to him. And right before he went to the gas chamber, he told the prison guard, quote, I don't want to live anymore, unquote. Well, good, dude, because you're about to get gassed. You just took at least nine lives, so now you get to pay with yours. And you know, maybe the apple did not fall too far from the tree. Back in 1943, now this is 10 years before his execution and before Lloyd Gomez would claim his first known victim, his own father, Manuel Gomez, had been arrested for the murder of a man that he beat to death one New Year's Day. He received a life sentence for that death. Now, what are the chances, right, that the father would murder somebody and that the son would become a serial killer murdering several people? June 3rd of 1955, a triple execution takes place at San Quentin, that of Barbara Graham, Jack Santo, and Emmett Perkins, as they would meet their fate in the gas chamber. Barbara, she was better known by many as Bloody Babs. Now Babs and her two accomplices, they had schemed a plan about robbing a wealthy widow from her beloved jewels and large sums of money that was believed to be kept somewhere in her home. Mabel Monaghan, she had been trying to cope with life after losing the love of her life. If only she knew that evil lurked nearby. On March 9th, 1953, Barbara, Jack, and Emmett, along with at least one other man, They enter the Widow Mabel's house. They take her by surprise and they tie her up. They manhandle her and she does receive a rather brutal beating. They ransack the house, but they fail to find any type of jewelry or money or anything really of real good value. How could they have been so wrong? They knew she was wealthy. Just exactly where were her treasures? As we know, Babs, Jack, and Emmett are all executed the very same day. The other man that was there that day, he would turn state evidence. This individual also recommended that the woman's gag be removed because he noticed that it looked like she was having problems breathing. He knew that robbing was part of the plan, but when it comes to beating this woman and subduing her, he really wasn't okay with that. And so afterwards, he does call the police to come and help her. Sadly, though, and I honestly don't think this was intentional, but he gives the wrong address. And she's found two days later dead by her gardener. Did he give the wrong address on purpose? Or was he just so incredibly flustered with what was happening, things were just going so wrong, and he was nervous about getting caught by one of the others that he was just trying to ramble off the address as quick as possible. As, of course, they didn't know that he was calling the police. Why call the police at all, you know? 
So yeah, I, I truly do think that it was an accident. I don't think he meant to give the wrong address. But that's just me. Just my opinion. Either way, it was a very sad ending for a woman just mourning the loss of her husband. I turned from your grace when you tried to give me sight. Harvey Glattman, also known as the Glamour Girl Slayer and a Lonely Hearts Killer, he displayed disturbing behavior as a young boy. He often enjoyed putting a rope around his neck and pulling it tight, something the family doctor said that he would grow out of. As a teen, he just got worse. He enjoyed breaking into women's homes and robbing them, usually from their money and lingerie. He eventually graduates to assault, rape, and kidnap. For the rape and kidnapping of one woman, he does find himself in Sing Sing. Now, he's diagnosed with psychopathic personality and schizophrenia, along with being a sexual pervert. And to me, it is utterly unbelievable that he is paroled in 1948. If only they had a magic little wand or something or a magic ball and could read into the future that this man would become a vicious serial killer and eventually be executed for his crimes. Harvey would contact models from magazines with promises of work, and then once he had these ladies in his apartment, he would tie them up and rape them. He then would strangle them and dump their corpses in the desert somewhere. At least one victim he contacted was through a Lonely Heart ad. One of his victims was dubbed the Boulder Jane Doe. Well, her body was found by hikers near Boulder, Colorado. Her identity would remain a mystery for 55 long years, when, finally, in 2009, a break in the case, giving her her name back, and suddenly, Boulder Jane Doe becomes Dorothy Gay Howard from Phoenix, Arizona. Super, super sad what happened to Dorothy, but I'm so glad that she got her name back and that hopefully she still has surviving family and were notified with what happened. And I never say closure because really it's not closure. It doesn't bring her back, but at least they know what happened to her. Harvey, he is executed September 18th of 1959 via the San Quentin gas chamber. This next person's a real piece of work. Elizabeth Ann Duncan, who was executed August 8th of 1962, making her the last woman to be executed in the state of California. Elizabeth, she was no saint. It was no secret. She had been arrested a number of times for operating a brothel and passing bad checks. She had been married at least 10 times, and while she had a number of children, her son Frank was her all-time favorite. No competition. He was front and center. She was actually very obsessed with Frank. It was a very unhealthy relationship. And to give you an example of just how unhealthy this relationship was, they are living together. He's a grown man which I don't care. I'm not judging. You know, there's adults who live with their parents. I, I'm not judging that. But this is the part that gets 
to where it's unhealthy. He says, hey, mom, I think it's time for me to get my own place. She is devastated when he tells her this. She does not take it well at all. In fact, she attempts to take her own life by overdosing on a bunch of pills. She survives the suicide attempt, but is in rough shape and is cared for by a nurse named Olga Kupsiak. Elizabeth's son, her pride and joy, mind you, her, let's face it, obsession, he falls head over heels in love with this nurse, and they begin to see each other. Things turn serious rather quickly, and Olga, she becomes pregnant, and they soon are married. Let's just say that the honeymoon is over before it could even begin. Elizabeth, mother dearest, she is beyond furious. The thought of another woman being in her son's life made her utterly sick. Elizabeth threatened the pregnant nurse nonstop. Harassing her was like a full-time job. This actually made Olga have to relocate several times. She was terrified of this woman. One day, in November of 1958, Olga, she just vanishes. At the time of her disappearance, she is seven months pregnant. A man named Augustine Baldonado would later admit to the authorities that Elizabeth came to him offering to pay him and another man named Luis Moya $6,000 if they would murder her daughter-in-law. This was back in 1958. Talk about a payday. Today, that's $64,961. Of course, they're splitting that between the two of them, but still, that's a decent amount of money. I mean, it really is heartbreaking because Olga was brought into this family's lives because Elizabeth tried to take her own life, and this woman nursed her back to health. She would never have been introduced to such evil if it weren't for Elizabeth and Duncan's actions. And Elizabeth now is desperately trying to get rid of not only her daughter-in-law, but the mother of her unborn grandchild, and uh, duh, the grandchild itself. Augustine then takes the authorities to the burial site. The men did as she asked. They kidnapped her. They beat her heavily, strangling her and buried her and her unborn child in a shallow grave. Now, during her trial, Duncan would admit in court that she was terrified of being alone and could not live without her son constantly being right next to her. See? Unhealthy. Frank and Olga would separate weeks after their marriage, but that did not change the fact that Olga was pregnant with Frank's baby, and that would be demanding a lot of Frank's time, time away from his domineering, needy-as-hell, sadistic mother. Also during the trial, Elizabeth felt no shame at all in pointing the finger at her two accomplices. She's the mastermind, the head honcho. Augustine and Luis were just pawns in her evil, sick and twisted and demented game. She, along with the other two men, are found guilty, and they are all executed the same day, making this the last triple execution conducted in California. Frank, he fought hard for his mom until the very end. And you know, it is an absolute crying shame that he didn't fight for the lives of his wife and unborn child as well, as they were absolutely one million percent worthy. 
much more than Elizabeth Ann Duncan. Madera Tribune does a report regarding Elizabeth Duncan on August 9th, 1962. Quote, Lawyer Frank Duncan still was convinced of the innocence of the woman convicted of hiring two men to kill his pregnant wife. His belief was so strong that he waged a legal fight to save the life of the woman, his mother, Mrs. Elizabeth Duncan, 58, up to the moment she walked to California's gas chamber Wednesday. The two hirelings died with her in California's first triple execution since 1956. As plump Mrs. Duncan stepped into San Quentin's apple green execution chamber at 10.02 a.m., her son stood defeated on a San Francisco street corner. Only seven minutes earlier, his last hope, a plea for a stay of execution and a new appeal, was rejected by federal judge Walter Pope. He seemed not to notice a fire truck racing along the street. Although Mrs. Duncan was accused of hiring two men to slay her son's wife in 1958, Frank insisted she was innocent. They won't listen, Duncan said as he left the court. It's the most barbaric thing. Ten minutes after she entered the gas chamber, Mrs. Duncan was pronounced dead. The legal battle went on for more than two hours after her death, fought by attorney Edward Cragen in an effort to save Luis and Augustine, the Mexican-American farm laborers who pistol-whipped and strangled Olga Duncan on the mother-in-law's orders. They had pleaded guilty and lost an appeal for mercy. Cragen's appeals, first to the California Supreme Court, then to the United States District Judge Albert Wallenberg, and finally to the United States Appeals Court Judge Richard Chambers, proved just as fruitless. Moya and Baldonado displayed outward bravado that contrasted with Miss Duncan's. They entered the execution chamber at 1.05 p.m., just 10 minutes after rejection of their final appeal. Ten minutes later, both were dead. Mrs. Duncan's last words were a protestation of her innocence and to inquire about her son. I am innocent, she said to Warden Fred Dixon. Where is Frank? The state charged it was jealousy over sharing Frank's affections with Olga that drove Mrs. Duncan to hire the two men to kill her daughter-in-law, a one-time nurse from Canada. The two laborers were promised $3,000 each, but received only $360. Moya and Baldonado lightheartedly made jokes with guards and carried on a lively conversation, even after the deadly cyanide pellets were dropped into a vat of sulfuric acid. Be sure and close the door when you leave, Baldonado told guards as he was being strapped into one of the two green metal chairs in the octagonal death chamber. The final execution I want to talk about before we talk about some of the inmates past and current is that of the freeway killer, William Bonin, leaving behind a trail of bodies on the freeways of Southern California. He was an extreme sexual predator. He would rape and torture and ultimately murder at least 21 boys and young men. Not every single victim that he came into contact with would die. As a young man, he would oftentimes pick up many hitchhikers, always male. He would rape them, threaten them, and then he would release them. 
William is pulled over one fateful day by a police officer, and she recognizes him having the same characteristics as an unidentified rapist that was terrorizing the area. And believe it or not, at the time he was pulled over, one of those victims was in the car with him. He's arrested, thank God. But sadly, he will be arrested and released at least a couple of different times. He ultimately graduates to murder, and many poor young men would fall victim to the freeway killer. While waiting to be executed, he writes a book about his murders. He becomes friends with fellow serial killers, Lawrence Bittaker, half of the toolbox killer duo, Randy Kraft, the scorecard killer, Douglas Clark, half of the sunset killer duo, and Jimmy Lee Smith, also known as Youngblood. During and after his February 23rd execution in 1996, many victims' families just witnessed the man responsible for their loved one's murders taking his last breath and wept and embraced each other afterwards. He dies by lethal injection. Not all people who died here were executed. To mention just a tiny, mere handful, mass murderer Lang Ying, who had brutally murdered at least 11 people with a rifle and hatchet, he committed suicide October 22, 1928, just a couple weeks shy of what would have been his execution. His youngest victim, two weeks old. His oldest, 64 years old. He hanged himself with his own towel. In 1971, Mac Ray Edwards, a pedophile and serial killer who buried the bodies of his victims under freeways where he was employed, commits suicide by hanging. Nine years later, in 1980, Richard Chase, also known as the Vampire of Sacramento, a serial killer who got off on drinking the blood from his victims and cannibalizing them, was found dead in his cell. He overdosed on prescribed medications. Lonnie David Franklin Jr., a serial killer known as the Grim Sleeper, who committed at least 10 murders, he dies in his cell in March 2020. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing, believe it or not. The Grim Sleeper was actually a former corporal in the United States Army, and he also happened to work as a garage attendant at a LAPD station. On September 8th of 2023, serial killer Anthony Sully, who used to be a police officer, dies from cancer. He is responsible for killing at least six people and placing the bodies in metal drums and dumping them in Golden Gate Park. The following month, October 11th of 2023, Douglas Clark, yep, half of the Sunset Strip killers dies due to natural causes. The other half of the Sunset Killer duo died back in 2003. Again, this is just a tiny amount of people who died other ways besides execution here at San Quentin. A few of the past inmates include Rodney Alcala, also known as the Dating Game Killer, Black Bart, the American Outlaw, 
Merle Haggard, who, as a young man, had many encounters with the law, and after a stint in San Quentin, he cleaned up his life, and he would become an extremely successful country singer. He fell victim to the birthday effect. He was born April 6, 1937, and he died April 6, 2016. Charles Manson and Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, also called this place home at some point. Again, just a tiny fraction of past inmates. Many continue to call San Quentin home, such as David Carpenter, better known as the Trailside Killer, who would claim the lives of at least eight people in Northern California's state parks. At one point, he was even considered a suspect in the very unsolved Zodiac murders, but was eventually cleared from that. He is 93 years old, making him the oldest inmate in San Quentin. Dean Carter, the spree killer who in four days killed five people, is here as well. Numbers believed to be much higher and spanning in several states. Joseph Danks, the Koreatown slasher, spree killer, and serial killer, murders six homeless men and amazingly enough is given a life sentence. He is only given a death sentence after he murders his own cellmate. Taekwon Cox, he is a mass murderer and a gang member of the Roland 60s neighborhood Crips. Him and fellow gang members murder former NFL defensive back Kermit Alexander's family. At the end of August of 1984, a home in South Central Los Angeles is raided, and Kermit's mother, sister, and his 28-year-old nephews all are murdered. Two surviving family members manage to hide and eventually are able to scare the murderers off while on death row. Cox stabs Stanley Tukey Williams in 1988. Tukey himself was executed in San Quentin in 2005 via lethal injection. Ivan Hill, serial killer, better known as the 60 Freeway Killer. He had been in and out of the system, and he was released in early 1993, only to be thrown back in the system in early 1994, after he is involved in several robberies. He was handed a 10-year sentence, and at that time, a blood sample was taken from him, as was custom to do so with an inmate. Fast forward close to a decade later. It is March 2003. He is due to be released the following year, February 2004. His DNA pops up in an unidentified serial killer profile. He had apparently left his DNA from vicious attacks he had committed on women. This monster could have been set free. He could have been a free man and continue to kill. Thank the heavens. With the advancements of DNA, it was able to take him down for good, and he remains here in San Quentin to this very day. Ryan Hoyt took part in the kidnapping and ever-so-brutal murder of 15-year-old Nicholas Markowitz, who over the years I had befriended his mother on social media. And while it has been quite a while since we've last talked, I continue to always keep this sweet woman who lost her son in such a horrible way at such a young age in my thoughts and prayers. 
I actually have a book of hers and it's titled My Stolen Son, The Nick Markowitz Story. You know, that's the story behind Alpha Dog. And she signed it for me, writing, Tessa, thank you for your support and compassion. Nick's mom, Susan. Every time we would write each other on Facebook and Messenger, it was always Nick's mom, Susan. Just such a sweet, incredible woman, for sure. She talks about, in the book, so many different things. It's really, I really recommend getting that book, for sure. Again, it's titled My Stolen Son, The Nick Markowitz Story. And she talks about how he would have been turning 16 years old and she was just so heartbroken that instead of getting him a car like she was planning, that he was getting a coffin instead. Just, you know, heart goes out to her for sure. Ryan was sentenced to death for his part in Nicholas's brutal murder, which is more like life in California. His accomplices include Jesse James Hollywood, who got life without the possibility of parole, Grant Presley, William Skidmore, and Jesse Taylor Ruge. Unfortunately, all three of these men were released back into the population. Graham in 2007, William in 2009, and Jesse in 2013. We also have Randy Kraft, the scorecard killer who raped and murdered at least 16 young men. Scott Peterson, who made headlines all over the nation for murdering his very pregnant wife, Lacey. He remains here, thankfully. And Charles Ng, a serial killer coming from Hong Kong, raped and tortured and murdered several people, at least 11. But the number, well, it's believed to be a much, much higher number. With his accomplice, Leonard Lake, who commits suicide at the police station while being questioned, mind you, by cyanide poisoning. Okay, (laughs) alert, alert, somebody's guilty. Dude is just screaming guilty if he's carrying around cyanide pellets waiting for last minute suicide. They both are sick sons of bitches, that's for sure. And when it comes to Ing, he is quite the drawer. In a documentary that I saw, it shows these pictures. It's him in his jail cell where on the wall he says they he has little sayings like no gun, no fun, and no kill, no thrill. And then there are pictures of his victims on the other side of the wall that had been hand-drawn, two of them being families, each consisting of a mother, father, and a baby. Yes, him and Leonard Lake managed to successfully wipe out two families. And yet another eerie drawing, which has to do with giving remains back to family members, and it is drawn in a cartoon-like manner showing him basically handing bags with names on them to the grieving family members. It's very deranged, disgusting, and yet another drawing, one of the most bizarre, is him holding a baby's body over a walk. And it shows him saying, Daddy dies, Mama cries, Baby fries. Ramon Salcido, a serial killer who murdered his family which consisted of his wife, four-year-old daughter, a one-year-old daughter, his mother-in-law, two sister-in-laws, and a woman named Tracy who was a wine master at a winery. Out of the murders, there was one itty-bitty tiny sole survivor, his three-year-old daughter named Carmina. 
And at three years old, she experienced just so much bloodshed, just so heartbreaking. And while she survived, she was hurt very badly and she almost died. He had slit her throat along with her sister's throats as well and left them in a field where she and her sisters were found. She is another person that around 2009 I had reached out to and she too has a book that just shares so much about what she went through and it's titled Not Lost Forever, My Story of Survival. And in it she writes to Tessa, Merry Christmas, many thanks, with love, Carmina Salcido. And while in the book she mentions that she had visited her father in San Quentin before, that she will never visit him again, That is, until his execution date arrives. Which, again, California, I don't think that will ever be the case. I think it's just like a life sentence, unfortunately. The Yosemite killer, Kerry Stainer, he also remains here. He is somebody that I talked a bit about, him and his violent crimes, when it came to the Yosemite curse episode. This week's special city shoutouts go to Kidderminster, England, Gig Harbor, Washington, Osaka, Japan, Shirts, Texas, Derby, Colorado, and Hillsboro, Oregon. Thanks, everybody. As always, it's greatly appreciated. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They are all awesome. Haven't heard every single damn one yet? No need to fret. Just hit up any of those phenomenal podcast platforms such as Apple Core Media Library, Castomatic, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts. Basically, wherever you may roam to hear your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. Thanks, everyone, and I will see you next week. My mind is like a prison field. Sun don't never shine. Got a life sentence and I'm doing a hard time. My mind is like a prison field. Sun don't never shine. They gave me life and I'm doing a hard time. My mind is filled with misery, heartache and despair.